Thank you, Tom. Turn to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, sorry, 2 Peter, chapter 1, uh, verse number 5. You may not even need to turn there. Uh, it's just a few words that we're going to focus in on this morning. Uh, we're, we're really looking at the theme of 2 Peter 1, 2 through 15 over the next several weeks. And and we saw in the first sermon in this series, if you weren't here for that a couple of weeks ago, I would encourage you to go back and get the overview of the whole text. But really, we just saw that Peter's goal, Peter's purpose for the remainder of his life, in his view, was to pound at least three truths into the minds of the early church that he was connected to. And the first thing he really wanted them to grasp and understand is that God has provided us with everything we need, with everything we need to live according to life and godliness along with precious and magnificent promises so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. That's the first thing he wanted them to understand, that God has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness along with precious and magnificent promises so that we can escape corruption and partake in the divine nature. The second thing he wanted them to understand is that because of these great graces that God has poured out upon us, because of these great graces, we need to apply all diligence in our faith walk to add to our faith moral excellence, and to add to our moral excellence knowledge, and to our knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness, and to steadfastness godliness, and to godliness brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection love. He kind of gives a, a progression to maturing as disciples. When you come to faith, as we saw last week, and, tr and a transformation occurs in your life, you then begin to develop moral excellence. You begin to add to your faith moral excellence, and, and you begin to develop a knowledge, and you add to your moral excellence even more knowledge, and you begin to develop self-control, and you want to add to your knowledge, self-control, and on and on. It's a progression of, of what it looks like to mature as a disciple. It's a pattern for making disciples. As you lead someone towards Christ and they, and they come to faith, then they need to add to their faith moral excellence and to their moral excellence knowledge and to their knowledge self-control. Because, Peter says, thirdly, if these qualities... If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you will not be useless to the kingdom. You won't be unfruitful in the kingdom. You won't be blind and short-sighted. You won't have to worry about falling away. You're going to have entrance to the kingdom abundantly supplied to you. So we want to spend our time over these several weeks walking through these qualities that Peter identifies in this passage of Scripture, primarily verses 5 through 7. We want to look at these qualities. We want to make sure that, our, that they are ours. We want to make sure that they're increasing so that we can progress to maturity as disciples, so that we can understand what it looks like as a pattern to make disciples, so that we can have these promises that we won't be useless and unfruitful and blind and and we won't have to fear falling away. We can hope for eternal life. Today we come to the quality of moral excellence. In verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, In your faith supply moral excellence. In your faith supply moral excellence. Now, in order to understand what it is Peter is getting at here. More importantly, to understand what the Holy Spirit through the pen of Peter is getting at, we need to start with, first of all, some definitions. You may not believe this when I say it, but this word, moral excellence, the Greek word arete, has plagued me for about 10 years now. I felt like when I first stumbled upon this passage of Scripture that this is absolutely, could be absolutely pivotal to maturing as disciples and making disciples to understand this progression that Peter gives us. And then I hit that second word in the qualities, this word translated in the New American Standard Bible as moral excellence, this Greek word arete, and I immediately ran into some brick walls. Some of your translations may say virtue. Some of your translations may say goodness. The New American Standard says moral excellence. 
The problem when we look at this word is, we, it's kind of ambiguous. We don't know what moral, what does he mean moral excellence? To be a very moral person? There's moral people that aren't Christians. There are people that live moral lives that aren't Christians. We say virtue, what does that mean? To be, to be perform well at whatever it is you do? You can be a virtuous guitar player in a godless band in a godless place. What, what do these words mean? And when we, when we want to know what a word means, we do the, the first thing we do is we let the Bible define the Bible, right? So we want to use the Bible. The Bible is the greatest commentary on the Bible. So we look up this word arete. Where is it used in the Bible? And immediately our hearts sink. Because we find out that this word is only used in two other places in the scriptures. And one of those places is by Peter again. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, here, here's where he uses it. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That word excellencies, arete. The excellencies of God. The other place it's used is by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 and verse number 8. And not to get too deep into uh, uncharted territory, but this is um, understood to be Paul borrowing some language from a pagan uh, textbook. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence... Arete, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So if we look at these two verses and we let these two verses be our guide to define moral excellence, we might say, we might be tempted to say that Peter's saying, add to your faith the characteristic of an excellent Christian. Moral excellence equals Christian excellence. Maybe, but it's not that easy. As you study how the word is used in other Greek writing, listen to these commentators and how they describe the word and see if we see a, a, a thread that ties them together. J.N.D. Kelly says it, it denotes a special quality, probably moral courage or moral energy. So if you're taking notes, you're really interested in this Greek word and what it means, you want to add it to your life, moral courage, moral energy. Another commentator said, in the present instance, it is quite commonly and I believe correctly understood to convey the idea of fortitude, firmness, energy. Fortitude, firmness, energy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Virtue here means moral power, or if you like, moral energy. It means activity or vigor of the soul. See to it, says Peter, that your faith is a living faith. See that it is an active faith. See that it is a vigorous faith. That's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So we have moral courage or moral energy. We have fortitude, firmness, energy. We have moral energy, activity, or vigor of the soul. And then according to John Brown, the word rendered virtue properly signifies energy. Energy manifesting itself in the active performance of duty and in bravely meeting the trials of Christian life. Now, some of you are hearing energy come up again and again and again, and you're going, that's the one thing I don't have, no matter how much of a Christian I am. I am slam out of energy. The word, is, the word comes with this idea of, yes, this moral energy, this moral activity, this moral vigor, this vigor of the soul. So not your body. Your body may be worn out. Your body may be out of energy. But you can have an energy and a vigor of the soul. As I looked at all of this information, I pulled together this definition. And you know this one's right because I put this one together. Okay, We took everything we learned. This is, this is your pastor's definition. So you can write this one down. Moral excellence, I believe Peter, what Peter's trying to say, moral excellence is moral energy that courageously, vigorously, 
and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude. Moral excellence is moral energy, soul energy, spiritual energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the Christian faith with great fortitude. And when you think about it, that sounds like a pretty good definition of an excellent Christian, doesn't it? Someone who has spiritual energy to courageously, vigorously, and actively live out the Christian faith with great fortitude. Well, there's the definitions. Probably didn't help a whole lot. A lot of information, right? So I want us to flesh this out a little more. And I want us to not only see the definition of arete, but I want you to see some descriptions. Some descriptions in the Bible where we can get some illustrations of what this word Peter is getting at means. And then we're going to talk about how to, how to add this kind of thing to our life. So we've defined the word as moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude. We want some illustrations. We need an illustration of what moral excellence is not, and we need an illustration of what moral excellence is. Let's first look at what moral excellence is not. Let me give you some examples. Example one, exhibit A, Abraham. Some of you are thinking, you're not going to talk bad about Abraham, right? The friend of God. But listen, Abraham... The Bible says, believed God, that's faith, is it not? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But then Abraham begins to travel down into Egypt with his beautiful wife, Sarah. And as he begins to cross into the border of Egypt, he realizes that Pharaoh may see how beautiful his wife is, and Pharaoh may try to steal his wife, and in stealing his wife, put, Moses to de- uh, put Abraham to death. So Abraham says, Sarah, let's come up with this plan here. I want you to tell him you're my sister so that he won't kill me. And then he can just take you into his harem, and we can live, and I can live. So he turns around and lies to the king of Egypt, puts his wife in a compromising position, Because he didn't have enough fortitude and enough courage to be truthful and rely on the God whom he had just believed in. He feared the king of Egypt rather than fearing his God. John Brown said it was was the not adding to faith virtue that made Abraham to equivocate so pitifully in Egypt and Gerar. Thank God he became virtuous in the end, right? Before it was over. Another example of what Mark is not. The chief, the chief rulers in Jesus' day. John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Many of the rulers believed in Jesus. They believed that he was who he said he was. They believed that he was the Messiah. But, there's the three-letter word, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The chief rulers believed in him. They had a level of faith, but because they were afraid of the Pharisees, because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, because they lacked moral energy, fortitude, vigorous faith, and active faith, they refused to confess him. They feared man rather than God. That's a bad example of moral excellence. Pilate, he hears the complaints against Jesus. He interviews Jesus himself. He sees this man and he knows, he knows the right thing to do in this situation is to release Jesus. He knows that Jesus has done nothing worthy of condemnation. He's done nothing worthy of death. A lost man who knows right from wrong, and yet what does he do? He lacks moral energy. He lacks moral excellence. He lacks fortitude, and he feared men rather than God, and he put Jesus to death on the cross. One last example. This one may be closer to home in this text that we're studying. Peter himself looks Jesus in the eyes and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say that he must be delivered up and be put to death. 
And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, to be put to death. I will go with you to the death. I will stand by you to the death. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, Jesus. And then Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times in the most critical moments. In a pinch, he denies that he even knows Jesus, his fear of man, his fear of little servant girls. Exceeded his fear of God. And when you look at this picture of Peter, without fortitude, without an active, vigorous, committed faith, is it any wonder that he would come to his, his disciples in 2 Peter 1 and say, you have to immediately add to your newfound faith moral excellence. You have to add to your newfound faith this moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the Christian faith with fortitude because you're going to need it. It seems that adding virtue or moral excellence to faith is like adding backbone to your profession. A lot of us Baptists need to hear that. Because we walk down an aisle, we pray a sinner's prayer, we get, go through the baptistry, we join the church. But we don't have any spiritual backbone. I'm not talking about political backbone. we got plenty of political backbone. I mean spiritual backbone. John Brown said, Who has not had reason to regret how many opportunities of doing good, of honoring God, and promoting the best interests of mankind he has lost just for want of a little moral energy and fortitude. Think about how many times you have blown it for Jesus because you lacked moral energy and fortitude. How often, John Brown goes on, how often has he done what he ought not to have done? What he knew he ought not to have done. How often has he not done what he ought to have done? What he knew that he ought to have done just because he did not add faith to virtue. It's like moral backbone. Moral excellence is not what we see in Abraham at Egypt. It's not what we see in the chief rulers who, who feared man rather than God, who wanted to please man rather than God. It's not what we see in Pilate who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it because of his fear of the crowd. It's not what we see in Peter who testifies to his faith in Jesus as a Messiah and then denies him three times in the face of danger. So what is moral excellence? What is this Greek word arete? Let's, let's have an illustration of what it does look like. We see this type of moral excellence, this energy, this virtue and fortitude applied and displayed for us in the early church. If you have a Bible, you want to follow along, you can look in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 13. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 13. Keep in mind that these followers of Jesus have been hidden away in an upper room fearful, hiding, concerned about what the future held, and then the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They, they all of a sudden have great moral energy. They all of a sudden have great moral fortitude and Christian fortitude and, and vigorous, a vigorous spirit and an active spirit. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, Peter and John are out and, and they're ministering publicly. And it says, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Here are Peter and John. They go from the upper room where they're hidden out and fearful for the future. And now they're out on the streets and they are seen as men with great confidence, great fortitude, great energy, a vigorous nature, an active nature. They're different. They had faith. Even Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, the, the, the Bible says that Jesus blew on them and said, receive the Spirit. So we have, we have to understand that they had the Spirit of God. But now there's something different that's happened. It's like they went from having the Spirit of God and faith to having the power of God and confidence. 
Read on in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, you skip down. Peter and John wind up in jail, wind up brought before the council, given a good scolding. We see another example of moral excellence in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And what they had said to them is, stop doing this, be quiet. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And verse number 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. There's you a picture of fortitude. They leave City Hall. Where the police tell them to be quiet. They go to a brief prayer meeting and come right back out. And with boldness and confidence and fortitude and an active faith and a vigorous faith. And they do the right thing. Let me give you one more illustration of what moral excellence is. In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. He stayed in trouble, didn't he? We, we tend to shy away from trouble. We tend to shy away from those who get into trouble. It's not very dignified. We would have shied away from these guys real quick. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered without equivocation, We must obey God rather than man. Now do you see the exact opposite of what Peter and John and the disciples are doing and what those chief rulers were doing? The chief rulers believed in Jesus, but they would not confess Jesus because they feared men and they wanted to please men rather than God. And now we have Peter and John and the disciples saying, we're going to do the right thing because we want to please God rather than man. Maybe Christian excellence, moral excellence, moral energy is simply love Loving the smile of God rather than the smile of men. And fearing the frown of God more than we fear the frown of men. Moral excellence, Christian excellence, is moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude just like the early church did in the face of continual opposition. Continual suffering and continual persecution. When you think of it this way, is there any wonder that Peter is telling the disciples to immediately and diligently add to their faith moral excellence? Have you read 1 Peter? All you have to do is just is just very flyover view of 1 Peter. And what you see is that Peter is, is teaching the church and encouraging the church during suffering, during persecution, and preparing them for even more to come. 1 Peter is all about suffering and persecution among the believers. And he, say, he sees this and he realizes they need moral excellence. They need spiritual energy. They need courage. They need a vigorous faith. They need to actively live out the faith with great fortitude like that early church in Acts. And I'm going to tell you something, people. And it does not make one difference how the election goes in November, we are about to see the church turned on like never in any of our lives. The stage is already set. And Jesus made it very clear. You will be hated 
in all places for my name's sake. That includes this place, and it's already happening. And those who survive it will be those who have added Christian excellence of this kind to their faith. I want you to hear that loud and clear. We are hated and we will be hated more and more in this culture and in other cultures. And those who survive it are going to be those who add moral excellence, Christian excellence to their faith. So we've seen a definition. We've seen some descriptions of what it is not and what it is. And now I want us to, to make some determinations together. What can we take away from this? What have we learned this morning? How can we be diligent to pursue this type of moral excellence as followers of Jesus? How can we add to our faith this moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the Christian faith with great fortitude just like the early church did in the face of trial and suffering. I want us to make five determinations together. I'm going to try to move through these quickly. But I make no promises. I'm going to try. Five determinations that I want us to make if we want to add this type of moral excellence to our faith. Number one, determine you. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about you. Determine to be with Jesus. Remember Acts 4 and verse 13? They observed the confidence of Peter and John and they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You want moral excellence of this kind? You want arete to be added to your faith? Determine to be with Jesus. I didn't just say be with Jesus. Determined to be with Jesus. And we live in a day and in an age where we cannot stop scrolling Facebook until our heads hit the pillow. We cannot stop scrolling Instagram and Twitter and filling our mind with 5,000 blogs and around the clock, 24 hours a day news. If you do not determine to be with Jesus, you will not be with Jesus. You'll be with the social crowd in this cyberspace world that's not even real. Some of you can't even listen to a sermon without scrolling Facebook. And you know who you are. You're sitting right out here looking me dead in the eyes. And you're scrolling along Facebook and Instagram while the, the message is being preached. While we're singing songs to, to God. You can't even stay away from it that long. You better determine to be with Jesus. You better resolve to be with Jesus if you're going to be with Jesus or you won't be with Jesus. And, and, and then you will crumble and you will fall as things heat up in this country. Number two, determine to pray together. Acts chapter 4, they've been scolded by the leaders. And when they had been released in Acts 4, 23 and 24, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. <clears throat> as we seek to be with Jesus as individuals, that's vitally important. But what we see here is that they've moved beyond just being with Jesus as individuals. And now things have ramped up and they have determined to pray together. With one accord, they lift their voice to God. And they're not lifting their voice to God for Aunt Ida's sore toe. Or Uncle Bill's gallbladder surgery. Are filling the blank with a thousand prayer requests that we like to talk about. Those physical prayer requests. Because we want to maintain our comfort and our health. And none of us want to get sick. None of us want to die today, I don't think. So we pray for those things. But listen, when, when suffering ramps up, when persecution ramps up, when, the, when faith is put to the test. Then... We come together in our discipleship groups. We come together in our Sunday school classes. We come together in our small groups. We come together 
when we get together and our prayers shift focus and they shift not just for protection, not just for healing, but for boldness and for confidence and for resolve and for fortitude and for spiritual energy. Determine to be with Jesus. Determine to pray together. Number three, determine to be continually filled with the Spirit. What happens at the end of that passage in Acts 4.31? When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled here literally means to be continually being filled repeatedly. Now I know, I know, I hear it. I hear some of you thinking it. Well, I, if I'm a Christian, I've got the Holy Spirit. and that's, I'm, I don't need any more of Him. I've got Him. That sounds real holy until I say, so you're a Christian and do you have God the Father? Yes. Do you want more of Him? No, no, I don't want more of God the Father. Would you say that? No. You wouldn't. Well, I'm a Christian and I've got Jesus. Do you, do you want more of Jesus? No, no, I've got Jesus. I don't want any more of Him. You would never say that. But then I say, you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you want more of Him? No, I've got the Holy Spirit. Don't let people who abuse Scripture rob you of Scripture. We're bad about that. We want to swing the pendulum way over here. Well, they're doing that, so we're going to do the opposite. That's usually wrong. We need more of the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be continually being filled with the Spirit. Remember, the disciples are undercover in Acts chapter 1, hiding in an upper room. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit fills them. And they speak the word of God. And they're heard in multiple languages. Then Peter and John get thrown into prison. They're rebuked by the religious leaders. Their bubble is burst. But they have fortitude. So in Acts chapter 4, they go back and they pray together in one accord. And what happens? They were filled with the Spirit. Wait a minute now. We got filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We don't want any more of that Spirit. We got all the Spirit we needed to get the Spirit. No, they got it again. And then... All the way down in Acts chapter 13. All the way down in Acts chapter 13. The Jews incited devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city. And they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. In verse 51, they shook the dust off of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Man, it would do us all some good. If we could just be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It literally means to be controlled by. To be controlled by the Holy Spirit. If I am on an airplane at 30,000 feet and the pilot comes on the, the speaker and he says, This is the captain speaking. I'm sorry to inform you, but both engines are down. We're about to crash. There's going to be people on the plane who are going to be filled with fear. They're going to be overcome with fear. Everything in them is going to be dominated by their fear. You get a call that your most cherished loved one has just died in a tragic car accident. You're going to be filled with sorrow. You're going to be overcome with sorrow. And it's going to control your thoughts. It's going to control your tears. It's going to control your mouth. It's going to control your stomach. When we get filled with the Spirit, He controls us. We come under His control. You want to know if you're filled with the Spirit? Is He in control of your mind, your eyes, your mouth, your hands, your feet, your life, your wallets? When we're filled with the Spirit, we're under His control. And we keep going back, and we keep going back, and we keep going back, and we die to ourselves daily, and we get filled with the Spirit. We need to determine to be continually filled with the Spirit. Number four. 
determined to fear God rather than man or death. We want to add to our faith moral excellence, determined to be with Jesus, determined to pray together, determined to be continually filled with the Spirit, and number four, determined to fear God rather than men or death. This is the determination, a decision you have to make. In Acts chapter 5, 27 to 29, when they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In other words, we are going to fear God, not you guys. They're in the courtroom. And the judge who has the power, it seems, looks them in the eye and says, You've been ordered to to do this, and you're not doing this. Now obey our command. And they say, We're not afraid of you. We fear God more than you. Determine to fear God. Have the resolve, have the virtue, have the fortitude, the moral excellence, the spiritual energy to stand firm in the face of trial, tests, and temptations. In the words of one commentator, let not yours be a timid, feeble, ineffective faith, but let it show a power and energy befitting its source. Power and energy befitting its source. What is the source? We've learned. Our almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, ever-present, all-knowing, all-wise, good God of all creation has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness along with precious and magnificent promises. So let's have the energy and the fortitude that is befitting its source. I'm going to resolve right now. I'm going to determine right now ahead of time before the trial, before the test, before the suffering to fear God rather than men. I'm going to obey. I'm going to resist evil. I'm going to pursue good. I'm going to exercise spiritual fortitude necessary to exemplify an excellent, energetic, confident, powerful Christian life. I'm going to resolve to fear God rather than men, rather than death. I mean, what do we fear of men? We fear death, right? What is there to fear of men? It's not fear of men. It's fear of death. So listen carefully to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 say something very, very provocative. Very powerful. Very important for us to get a hold of. If we're going to have moral excellence. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now we know that Jesus did not, account, did not count equality with the Father, a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, right? Took on the form of human flesh and lived a life of obedience to death, even death on a cross. So yes, Since we have flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did he have to come in flesh and blood? Why did he have to be born of a virgin in a manger as a human? Why couldn't he just come, as as we see him in Revelation, clothed in white with sword in hand on white horse? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us he partook of the same that through death. Revelation, Jesus can't die has to be human Jesus. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. So Jesus takes on flesh because we have flesh. And our greatest enemy, our greatest fear is not man, but what? Death. That's why we're quick to bring those physical prayer requests. Because we fear death. So Jesus says, I'm going to take on flesh and blood so that I can experience death. Why does Jesus have to experience death? So that he can render powerless. He can snatch away the power of the one who has the power of death. He can snatch away the keys of death. He can snatch away the power of the one who has the power over death. Who is that? Who is it that has the power over death? Thank you for telling us, author of Hebrews. That is the devil. Stay with me. Jesus took on flesh 
so that he, through his death, could take away the one power that Satan has over mankind, and that is fear of death. Read on in verse 15. And that he might free those, that he might free those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christian, if you are terrified of death, when the opportunity comes to go to hard places where people hate Jesus and will murder Christians and where the church has to hide out in a house, you will say, well, God's not leading me there. Well, why isn't God leading you there? Because you might die. What's the matter with you? Are you crazy? That's exactly what Peter and John would have said. I mean, you know. You mean you're going to go down there? I heard that this goes on down there. You know what? We are a church in America specifically. Specifically, we in America are a church that are held in slavery to fear of death. We, we measure everything by danger. Not doing that, not going there, not sending my kid there. I'm not, no, ne- negative. And we are held as slaves of Satan himself because we are afraid of death. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus Christ came to this earth to free us from the power of the one who has the power of death. He has freed us from fear of death. He has freed us from Satan because we shouldn't fear death anymore. And I'm going to tell you, if you ain't scared of dying you'll have some fortitude. If you're not scared of dying, you'll have moral energy. If you're not scared of dying, you'll have an active, vigorous faith that'll stand with fortitude in the face of trials. I might lose my job. You might lose your job. And you mean to tell me you're not afraid of death and you're afraid of losing your job? I mean, if I went in to where I worked and actually shared the gospel and told the truth and didn't play by the rules, I'd lose my job. I mean, that's out of the question, right? Yeah, that's what Jesus said. That's, that's exactly what Jesus said to the American church. Everywhere else, it doesn't apply. But here, it applies. We need some fortitude, people. I need some fortitude. You need some fortitude. We need some moral energy. Last thing. We need to determine to be with Jesus. Determine to pray together. Determine to be continually filled with the Spirit. Determine to fear God. Rather than man or death. And number five. Determine to hope in the future resurrection. This kind of goes with the last one. So don't miss this. Please don't miss what I'm about to say. Because it can be misunderstood. The church here, and we are so vastly different than the church in the rest of the world. The West, the church in the West. Here's what we do. We are characterized by focusing on the past resurrection. We sing about the past resurrection. Jesus Christ went to the cross, died on the cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on Sunday morning, hallelujah, he rose from the grave. And we sing about the past resurrection, and we should sing about the past resurrection. Hallelujah for the past resurrection. We preach about the past resurrection, that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. He, according to the Scriptures, died for our sin and was buried, and that He rose from the grave on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by many. We preach that, and we should preach that. We believe that, and we should believe that. We embrace that, and we should embrace that, or we're not Christians, right? But we get stuck looking back to the past resurrection and hanging on to the past resurrection only. But the early church, they seem to focus much more on the future resurrection. Now you read and you, you look at their prayers, you look at their preaching, you look at their lives, you look at the letters in the church and you see, yes, they were grateful for and they hung on to and they had faith in the past resurrection, but they talked a lot about the future resurrection. 
And it changed how they viewed life and how they viewed death. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, what does it say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What are they hoping for? They are hoping for a future resurrection. Faith is the assurance of that thing hoped for, a future resurrection. The conviction of things not seen. And then we start reading in Hebrews 11 of the story after story after story after story of people who seem crazy by our standards in 21st century Western culture. These people are crazy. Some of them are sown into, wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, suffering, watching their loved ones buried. One after another after another. And what was it that drove them with such faith? It was hope in a future resurrection. These guys are reckless. Every one of them is reckless. Every one of these men, women, they're reckless in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because they're hoping for something in the future. David Sitton former missionary to Papua New Guinea and founder to every tribe, likes to say this. Reasonable risk guys, reasonable risk guys don't get a chapter in the Bible. It's the reckless abandoned crowd that get the chapter in the Bible. It's the crowd that has moral energy that courageously, vigorously, and actively lives out the faith with great fortitude just like the early church did in Acts. It's the crowd whose hope, whose treasure, and whose life is invested in the future resurrection. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He wrote an entire chapter to the church at Corinth which focused primarily on the future resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the midst of that chapter, listen to this verse. If we, he's talking about himself, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does he mean by that? This is what Paul means. If this life is all that there is, then we of all people deserve to be pitied more than anyone. Why? Because we have left houses. We have left lands. We have left families. We have left farms. We have suffered beating. We have suffered financial Deprivement. We have suffered hunger. We have suffered thirst. We have suffered stonings. We have suffered imprisonments. We have suffered shipwreck. For what kind of accolades? We don't get invited to speak at T4G. We don't get invited to speak at the convention. We don't get invited to speak at the pastor's conference. We're two on the fringe. We've laid everything down. All of our credentials down. All of our resumes down. We've laid our lives down. And if this is all there is, if there's not a future resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. And how many of us, when we get to that day, are going to say the exact opposite? When we see the future resurrection. When we see eternity. And we realize that we have, we have lived it up. We've fed ourselves well. We've clothed ourselves well. We've lived our lives well. We've fattened up our bank accounts. We've fattened up our 401ks. We have had it made and we have lived our lives as if there is no future resurrection. But this is it. This is it. Not Paul. And why? Because Paul and the Hebrews 11 crowd were looking forward to and investing in the hope of a future resurrection. We want fortitude. We want a vigorous faith. We want moral energy. We need to determine to hope in the future resurrection and not in this life. It's the crowd whose hope, whose treasure, and whose life is invested in the future resurrection that get the chapters in the Bible. Is that your hope? Is that your hope? The future resurrection? Is that your hope? Eternity? Is that where you're storing your treasure? Is that where you're investing your life? If not, you need to look back this morning to the past resurrection where Jesus Christ came and lived the life that God requires of us. A life of perfect holiness. 
sinless perfection. And then he went on a cross and there suffered for your sin, for my sin, and gave up his spirit. He was buried in a bar tomb and he rose from the grave on Sunday morning so that those everywhere who would turn away from their sin and put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ could have the hope of a future resurrection and lay down their all for His glory. If we're going to be mature believers, if we're going to be disciple-making believers, then we need faith that transforms. But we need to add to that faith moral excellence, Christian excellence, energy, vigorous, active, with fortitude that can stand in suffering, trials, tests, and persecutions. So this morning, let's determine to be with Jesus. Let's determine to pray for boldness together. Let's determine to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's determine to fear God above all else. And let's determine to hope in and look forward to that future resurrection together. We're going to pray. And after we pray, we'll be dismissed. If you need someone to talk with, counsel with, pray with, there'll be pastors that are around the fountain area. Feel free to grab one of those on the way out as you're dismissed. You can place your offering if you have that in a bucket. We thank you for being with us this morning. Don't leave here without taking time to make sure you've been obedient to what Christ has called you to do, to do and be this morning. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for the faith that you have provided us with, that you have made us partakers of, a faith that transforms our lifestyles, a faith that transforms our love and our priorities, causes us to persevere, to confess you, to obey you. And out of that faith, God, we get a measure of moral excellence. Out of that faith, we get a measure of fortitude and energy and vigorous faith. But I pray that you would help us to determine today to add to our faith this type of virtue. That you would help us to add to our faith Christian excellence, goodness, moral energy that is vigorous and active fortitude help us to determine right now to be with you regularly, consistently, often help us to determine now when we gather together to pray for your boldness and your power help us to determine now to seek more of your spirit and to be filled with your spirit continually help us to determine now to fear God above all else help us to determine now to put our energy, our focus, our hope, our everything in that future resurrection and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.